before my wife and I first started dating, uh, we were talking on the phone for a little while, getting to know each other, and then uh, it was a Thursday night. We've been talking for most of a week or so, and uh, it was Thursday night. My wife was hoping I'd ask her out on Friday, and uh, we're so we're talking on the phone, and apparently I didn't ask as quickly as she hoped that I would, and so she started to kind of probe a little and maybe help me along in the, in the process. So she says, uh, we're talking, she says, so what are you doing Friday night? <clears throat> and I said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to the, to the movies. And uh, she said, oh, what, what are you going to go see? And I said, I'm actually going to go see uh, the, this new Mel Gibson movie that came out, old movie. And, uh, and she says, oh, who are you going with? And I said, oh, I'm going by myself. And, uh, and she says, oh, well, um, I really want to see that movie too. So I say, I'll let you know how it is. And uh, <clears throat> true story. And so she says, how about, how would you feel about me if I went with you? And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? Do you want me to come pick you up or something? Yeah, I want you to come pick me up. Uh, that sounds good. Now, I will tell you this. I tell you that because my, my, what my wife has learned about me, and now that was almost 20 years ago uh, that I asked her out on our first date, is uh, what she has learned is that sometimes I'm a little bit clueless. Um, and, and I've been pretty consistent about that over the last 20 years. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I, by nature, I tend to be a bit of a thinker. Doesn't mean I'm smart. I just think a lot. Um, and so because I'm a bit of a thinker, what happens is, is that I, um, I, I kind of get lost in my own thoughts. And then like whatever is going on in the real world tends to fade a bit. And then, um, I, because I'm just so lost in my thoughts. Uh, now let me give you an example because my wife and I were just talking about this recently. Um, we've been married now for 15 years and there's this typical thing that I do that I never realized I did until about two months ago or three months ago. Um, I, I take out the garbage in my house. I don't like, I just don't think that, you know, my wife should have to take out the garbage. Not because she can't. She knows how to take the bag out and bring it to a dumpster uh, or, you know, to our thing. I just, I just, I don't know. I just don't like her doing that. So I will, I, I take the garbage out. But what happens is, is that I go out, um, I go through the garage, and when I go through the garage, I see this table that has all these projects that are about half done, right? Because I'm a typical man, which I have several half done projects in my garage. And then <clears throat> I start thinking about other things. I start thinking about a phone call I need to make and something I, oh man, I got to do that. And, oh, I got to return that email. And, I gotta do, and, and so I start thinking about all this. So I go back inside and I start working on all the stuff that I've been thinking about that I need to do. Never realizing that I actually never put a new garbage bag in the garbage can. Now, so we're talking the other day, and uh, I take out the garbage, and this is maybe, like I said, about two, three months ago. I come back in, and my wife is putting the garbage bag in the garbage can. And I'm like, hey, thanks so much for doing that. I guess I forgot. And she's like, Bob, we've been married almost 15 years. You've always forgotten. And not, and not in the sense of like, you know how they say about a broken clock, that a broken clock is right twice a day? Uh, you've never even remembered, I, I mean, like, never, once. And then I'm thinking back, like, you know, you know, like that scene at the end of um, uh, The Sixth Sense where Bruce Willis, like, kind of sees the whole movie, like, he really, he is dead. You know, well, by the way, I just spoiled that movie for you. Um, <clears throat> but I just real, I realized the whole thing, like, wow, I've never, I have no recollection in my life of ever putting a garbage bag in that can. Like, that's weird. And uh, so much so that the other night, uh, we went out, on uh, yesterday and uh, I took the garbage out um, and then we went out Carrie and I went out on a date and uh, someone was watching the kids and we came back and the girl that was uh, from the church here that was watching our kids um, she put the bag in and I'm thinking like wow I really miss it like I, anybody will put the bag in except me and um, <clears throat> and so I'm telling them, I'm like well, Carrie I'm really sorry about that and I've been like really trying so I'm probably doing it like 25% of the time now because I'm like Focusing, new bag, new bag, new bag. I keep saying that. as It's like my chant. And then I start thinking about something and then I forget about what I'm doing. Um, now, I tell you all of that because we started this series of teachings last week that's called Boy Meets Girl. And the thing about Boy Meets Girl is that Boy Meets Girl, that phase, is really fun. And even the things that, you know, these little idiosyncrasies that we all have, they're cute. But then there's another phase, and that is Boy Knows Girl. And girl knows boy. And now that's a totally different uh, thing where the thing that was kind of fun and cute 
and that little idiosyncrasy is now totally obnoxious. And man, I, why do you do that? And I, I can't stand that. And it's like it's after the new car smell wears off and we see each other's faults and weaknesses and flaws. And it's in these moments that we recognize the need that couples need to have God's power in their lives. You see, because nothing reveals our shortcomings like marriage does. And so that's why when the Apostle Paul starts his talk on marriage in the book of Ephesians, he doesn't start where most people think he starts. (coughs) Pardon me. He doesn't start in verse 22 talking about the roles of husbands and wives. No, instead, he actually starts the conversation about marriage a few verses before that. So if you would, open with me uh, to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. This is where we're going to be in our, in our study today. But he actually starts the conversation in verse 18. And, and the idea in verse 18 is he talks about the importance of God's people being filled with God's Spirit, being endued with God's power so that they can do God's will. And so the whole idea is, what Paul doesn't start with is verse 22. Wives do this, husbands do this, couples do this. Instead, he backs up and he says, listen, you can't do any of that apart from God's power and being able to do God's will the way he wants it done. So in your notes, I put verse 18 where he says, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So why do we need... God's power in our marriage? Why do we need to be filled with the Spirit in our marriage? I'm going to give you three reasons as we take a running jump into this section of Scripture. The first is this. Why do we need God's power in our marriage? Number one is because you can't have a godly marriage in your flesh. You can't. Your flesh, that is uh, what the Bible calls your sinful nature, is selfish and completely self-absorbed. And selfishness is kryptonite for a healthy, godly marriage. You can't be selfish and have a great marriage at the same time. These are two totally opposite ideas. These two things do not mesh. And that's why we need to be filled with God's Spirit to have a godly marriage. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 8, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So if we want a marriage that lasts, selfishness has to go. And the only way for selfishness to not run rampant in our marriages is for a husband and wife to rely on God, be filled with His Spirit and power in our relationship. And by the way, this isn't a one-time event. When he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, in fact, the, it could be translated, and, and, and the, way it's tran- the, the way it's constructed in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, It actually doesn't just say, be filled with the Spirit like a one-time event. It actually says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Like it's this continual action that we do. Why? Because as Christians, we have slow leaks. Right? Like we just, you know, we're filled with the Spirit. Man, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And then it just starts leaking out. I don't know where. I don't know how. But it just starts leaking out. And... um, and you know how it is, like, you know, you leave church today and you're going to be encouraged to do some things and you're going to do them and you're going to be like, you know, I can do this. I feel empowered by God to do this. And then, you know, you're going to go to sleep and Monday you're going to feel like you can do it. Maybe not as much as you were on Sunday, but you feel okay. You know, by Wednesday you're going to be like, oh, who cares, you know. <clears throat> why? Because this is not a one-time deal. That's why the Bible tells us to read the Scriptures daily, to pray daily, to encourage one another daily, to keep on being filled with God's Spirit so that we can do what God is, is seeking to empower us to be able to do. Because if we don't, we're going to, once again, if we're not keeping on being filled with the Spirit, leaking out, now flesh is going to take over and that will just wreak havoc in your relationship. So you got to, why do we need God's power? Because you can't have a godly marriage in your flesh. Number two, if you're taking note, because you need the Holy Spirit's leading in your actions. You need the Holy Spirit's leading in your actions. Paul contrasts in that verse two very, very different ideas. He says this, he says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Now, these are two very, very different things. And it just, they seem like they were things, they're things that you wouldn't put together as, you know, don't do this, but instead do this. I mean, they're just very, very, they don't even seem like normal type of, of opposites. But let me explain to you why I think this is actually 
uh, why he does contrast these two things. When someone gets drunk, there's a phrase that we use. We call it being under the influence. When someone is under the influence of alcohol, they say things they normally wouldn't say. They do things they normally wouldn't do. Paul contrasts the influence of alcohol, which causes you to do things you normally wouldn't say and do things you normally wouldn't do with being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. And he says that when you're filled with the Spirit, God actually changes you, makes you more like Jesus, and you're able to say things that you normally wouldn't say in your flesh, do things you normally wouldn't do, once again, if you're guided by the flesh. And so just like when a person is under the influence of alcohol, they wake up the next morning, I can't believe what I did. I can't believe what I said. A person filled with the Spirit, what happens? They're filled with the Spirit, and like, man... I can't believe that when this situation came up, I actually did what I did. I'm amazed that God empowered me to be able to do that. When this situation came up, and I normally get really angry and say things that I regret, God actually put words in my mind and in my heart that actually then came out of my mouth that actually diffused the situation rather than stoking a fire on a, on a difficult situation. And so there's this contrast that the Apostle Paul gives of this is what can, just like Alcohol, when a person is drunk, can change a person to do things they normally wouldn't say or do. The power of the Holy Spirit in a much greater way can change a person to do things that they wouldn't normally do that is in their selfish state or to say things they normally wouldn't do apart from God. And that's because the Holy Spirit wants to empower you. The Bible says this in, in, in Galatians chapter 5. It's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. But it says this. This is actually uh, from the New Living Translation. I like how it says it in the beginning. It says, but when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, isn't that the kind of person that, that you would want to be married to? Someone who's loving and full of joy and kind and patient and, and, and peaceful and good and faithful. I mean, right, this is the kind of person everybody does. Everybody wants to be married to that person. And this is what can happen when we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit as he changes us and transforms our lives. But then there's another thing. And that is when in this one verse in Ephesians 5. And that is not only do we need God's power because you can't have a godly marriage in your flesh. Because we need the Holy Spirit's leading in our actions. But the third thing is this. We need God's power in our marriage because God's will must be done God's way. God's will must be done God's way. And listen, sometimes as we are married, we will do the wrong thing for the right reason. Right? Every person who's married is guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. That we want to see something good happen. And sometimes we will do the wrong thing because we want to see a good outcome. And, um, and it's just what happens, right? And, and uh, you know, you hear this like, you know, my husband isn't a Christian. And so I'm trying to share the gospel with him. So what do you do? Well, when I make his sandwich, when he goes to work, I'm, you know, I read the passage in the Bible about God telling Ezekiel to eat the scroll, eat the word. So I put a Bible track in the sandwich in between two pieces of turkey. So when he ate it, he saw, what is this? He opened it up and then he saw a Bible verse. It had a bite mark taken out of it, but he got most of the verse in him. Right? That's not, not the way to do it. <clears throat> or sometimes I, I hear stories. What I do is, you know, I'll, I'll, make his, I'll make his dinner extra spicy. And then he's like, wow. And then he'll complain and I'll say, you think that's hot? You need Jesus, you pagan. Right? You know? So that's kind of, you know, right? And so while the heart is well-meaning, it's just not going to reach our goal. That's why verse 17 begins, as it begins the passage, he says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what's God's will? That couples love each other, sacrifice their own desires for each other, and lead each other to Jesus. And what happens when we put pride and selfishness aside and, and, and model Jesus to our in, in our marriage that now that's the whole point of marriage and that becomes what what the, the object of this is God's will we start doing it God's way and then we begin to see the results that God is looking for and listen the reason that many marriages struggle is because someone or both parties in the marriage are only looking to make withdrawals 
So it's like, well, I got married because I wanted to be happy. I got married because there's things that I wanted to get out of it. And so every time that we get together, it's withdrawal, withdrawal, withdrawal. And there's no deposits happening into the relationship. And instead, listen, a godly, spirit-filled, happy marriage is about what I can give and sacrifice for my spouse. And you know what the crazy thing is? This is the thing that's so counterintuitive. Is that when I decide, you know what, I'm not going to make me being happy the, the focus of this marriage. I'm going to make this other person being happy. I'm going to make God being pleased with me and my actions and my words and, and my attitude and heart. Um, and you know, what, you know what happens? The other person that you're married to experiences tremendous joy and you experience tremendous joy. Because there's something interesting that happens when it, when it comes to people wanting to be happy. Happy is not, happiness is not something that you go after. Happiness, be, because happiness is the byproduct of something else. And so, when I just say, well, I want to be happy and I'm going after being happy, and usually that involves self-centeredness, me getting everything that I want, most people who get everything that they want end up very, very unhappy. Because that's not the way to actually get the thing that we're looking for. Happiness is actually the byproduct of something else. According to the Bible, happiness is the byproduct of actually uh, denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus. In my marriage, it's, 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 the, it's making deposits into my spouse, deposits into my relationship. And when I do, I see her joy, and then it begins to give me great joy. So, as we see that as a backdrop for what we're going to look at in this passage that begins Paul's discourse on, on marriage. What's the result of, being, of having a spirit-filled marriage? What's the result of having God's power in your marriage? I, I want to read you these verses. and um, we'll, we'll start in verse 18, which we read, but let's read the rest of it through verse 21. It says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, three things, three uh, things that change in our lives, th things that we desire in our lives that happen when we are filled with God's Spirit. Here's the first one. <clears throat> the first one is that your words have depth and wisdom. Your words have depth and wisdom. The result, according to this verse, he says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit, is that when you're filled with the Spirit, you actually have a song in your heart. And your words are filled with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, let me tell you what, that, that doesn't mean that your life becomes a musical. All right? It doesn't mean that, you know, you're like, I'm going to Publix. Praise the Lord, maker of bread and Twinkies. Right? That's not, that's not like the point. Um, the idea is, is that when you're full, when you are full of the Spirit of God, wise and godly speech is what comes out. I, I was talking with a friend years ago, um, and him and I were in a band together. I became a Christian. I left the, left the band. This is my band that I was in. We were on the verge of a big record deal and all that, and um, I left. I became a Christian. <coughs> I um, finished college and all that. And so it was a few years later, and um, he tracked me down and got my phone number and called me. And so we're talking on the phone. We were talking on the phone for about 10, 15 minutes. And he stops and he goes, man, um, you sound really smart now. What happened to you? And I, go, and I say, uh, and I'm like, what, was I an idiot before? And he says, well, yeah, yeah. so I hear you're married now. And like, you know, uh, so apparently, you know, I'm the poster child for come to Jesus, he'll make you smarter. Um, but, I, you know, have, have you noticed this? That, have you ever met somebody who was really mad and was singing? No. Because there's something interesting, like, when someone is mad, they're usually not saying anything. They're just like piping hot. They're just piping hot on the inside. But you don't hear someone like, you know, singing, certainly not singing like psalms and hymns and, you know, songs about Jesus. How are you doing? I am so mad right now. Right? It's just, it's just not the way it works. Right? It just, it just doesn't, it, it, 
because you don't you don't you know sing these songs to God when you're mad. You don't uh, you know you don't act, you've never met somebody who's like sinning and singing to God at the same time. There's never been a guy robbing a bank going, "We're giving it all away." Give me all your money. We're giving it all. The Put it all in the bank to show you way. Praise the Lord. Right? Nobody does that. Right? Because that's that's nuts. That's crazy. And so the whole thing is, listen, because singing is an expression of your heart. So when that's the attitude, if you're if you're in a place where you want to sing a song, it shows where your heart is and the attitude of the heart. And listen, and you know what will happen? We will speak kind words to each other, not words that hurt each other. I love this psalm. In, uh, in Psalm 43, <coughs> David writes these words. King David, he wrote a lot of the psalms, but he says this in Psalm 43. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. David wrote these words when his son Absalom was actually had... Um, mounted up a army. He had driven David from Jerusalem, taken him out of his, um, taken him away from his throne, out of Jerusalem. He's on the run, and and then he actually writes these words. So he writes Psalm forty-two and Psalm forty-three all together. And it's like, well, how's that? Because I'm thinking, you know, it's like, well, hey, why am I being run out? Well, you know, your son, you know, the one that you did t-ball with, and. You know, you signed him up for soccer and you were there. Remember, you were the assistant coach. Yeah. Well, um, he's decided he wants to kill you. Hey, that's weird. Yeah, he decided he's going to kill you and he's going to become king. And you would think like, yeah, that's not exactly a happy time in your life when you realize that one of your oldest kids wants to kill you. But instead, <clears throat> instead, what David does is it's like he's like talking to himself in this song. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will hope in God. I will praise Him because He's my Savior. There's something that happens. David's remedy to what could have been um, depression in his life and why he's so discouraged, his remedy to that was to simply praise God in all these different circumstances. And the reason why this is so important is because singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs remind us of who God is. You know, if... Um, if I'm like in a really busy day and I say, man, I didn't get all my, you know, I, I try to read the Bible every day. But if I miss, there's something that I always try to do. And that is I always try to read a chapter in Proverbs and I always try to read a psalm uh, because there is something about the wisdom of the Proverbs and just the wisdom that's found in the Psalms that has the ability to redirect our hearts from our circumstance to the God who is the creator and maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in it. You see, if you say, man, but I'm just going through a difficult time financially, then you need to sing. You need to sing and you need to, you need to speak the Psalms to each other. And once you start at Psalm 50, that's a great Psalm for if somebody's struggling. Uh, if somebody's like, man, we're just trying a tough time making ends meet. You know, you know what God says in Psalm 50? He says, for the animals of the forest are mine and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know what that means? That means God isn't broke. You know, and so we we remind, oh, God, you have resources that I have no idea about. And so if I focus on you and I do what you've asked me to do, then you're going to provide for me. Maybe your marriage is suffering from unforgiveness. One isn't forgiving the other. And you say, man, what am I doing? Maybe there's sin and you just haven't confessed it to one another. What do I do? Why don't you check out Psalm 32? Check out what David writes. He says this. I put it in your notes. He says, when I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me and all my guilt is gone. Say, well, that's man, but see, that's not my issue. My issue is, is that I'm at a crossroads and I don't really know what to do. I mean, I feel stuck. I, I feel like I'm, I'm the, the, the decisions, the future is cloudy. I'm not really sure where I'm supposed to go, the right to the left. I'm confused. What do I do? You need to sing the Psalms. You need to go to Psalm 119, verse 105, that says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's a constant reminder that if I just get into God's word, that God will reveal himself to me and reveal to me what it is that he wants me to do. The point is this. 
The person who is filled with the Spirit will have a song in their heart and wisdom on their lips for whatever situation God's, God brings their way. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> he says this. <clears throat> Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing to one another. Psalms 10, spiritual songs. And he says, um, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you pause there and give me your attention. The, se- the first issue is this, is that when you're filled with the Spirit, your words have depth and wisdom. The second is, is that your heart is thankful and grateful. It's thankful and grateful. Now, I have to admit, this is a hard one for me. Um, I think a lot of times people struggle with being grateful for what God has done, especially in a difficult season. But I think I've gotten better over the, over the years because we have to move to being intentional about being grateful. When I first moved into my first apartment, I was 21, and um, when I I had just just started college, and um, it, listen, moving into my own apartment, I had a roommate who was also a Christian. He was in college, and uh, it changed me. And mostly, it changed me in good ways. <coughs> I learned how to use a, a washing machine. I'll tell you that story sometime, um, which was crazy. But I learned how to use a washing machine. Um, I learned how to wash dishes. Um, I, I learned um, how to boil pasta, and uh, which pretty much I, I knew how to make. I could make a grilled cheese. I knew how to heat up uh, a Campbell soup because you just open the can and then you add one more thing of water. I learned. My wife taught me that. And um, this is when we were dating. And then I learned how to boil pasta. So if I could just heat up some saucy buy in the store, I could pretty much survive in America. Uh, that was my feeling is that, um, but something, th- the, so those were really good things, but um, living on my own or, or you know, with, with, with a buddy of mine brought out selfishness in me that I had no idea I had because my roommate never bought food. And so every time I went to the grocery store, he would come out and be like, it's like Christmas morning, you know, it'd be like all this food. Oh, I love this. The, the grocery fairy has come and brought all of his treats. And so, um, and, and this dude could really put it away. Um, well, anyway, I remember one day um, I had bought, I had gone to, to Publix. There's a Publix cross street from my apartment. And I had bought a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, which happens to be the greatest cereal of all time. Um, so I testify. And so, so anyway, I bought this box of cinnamon, like the big box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And uh, I had it in, in the cupboard. And I had uh, gone to class, I went to work, and then I came home. I came home, and I saw the, bo- the empty box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch in the garbage can. And I, I, seriously, if looks could kill, that he would have been a dead man. Uh, but I was so mad, and, uh, and it was like, I, like I, knew, I went through the roof um, that he had eaten my box of cereal and this whole thing and, you know, whatever. And um, so I, I, had, I decided that I was going to have a new strategy. My new strategy was I was going to keep buying food, but I decided to store all of it in my closet. I did. And then I bought paper plates, napkins, plastic utensils, and I, and I started eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner inside of my closet. Thankfully, it was a walk-in closet, so I had a little bit more space. And so, but I would close the door to my, to my room because I was so fed up with him, um, get, you know, eating all of my, uh, you know, all of um, all of my groceries <coughs> that I would <clears throat> I'd close the door to my room. I'd close the door to the closet and then I would just stand there and eat all of my meals right next to my hamper. And I'd be like, oh, cinnamon toast crunch. So good. And then I'd make myself a sandwich, you know, and cut it up. And um, and so I remember one time I was in there and uh, a, one of my best friends uh, still to this day came over to my house, knocked on the door. My roommate answers. And says, hey, where's, uh, is Bob here? And he says, oh, yeah, Bob's in his room. Uh, and he says, you know, just come in. I'm sure he'd be fine if you come in. Well, he knocks on the door and he says, hey, Bob, are you there? I'm like, yeah, man, come on in. I'm in the closet. Um, so he comes in and he's like, what is this? It's like Publix in here. Pretty much just like the snack aisle. But still, I mean, it's like a lot of, and I was eating, I was eating lunch. And I'm like, hey, man, do you want something? You want a Twinkie? Hostess cupcake. I got tons of stuff. This is before they went out of business. I got tons of stuff in here. And, um, and <coughs> pardon me. And uh, I'm doing, I'm just, and he's just looking like, Bob, can we, can we take a step back for a minute? And I'm like, what, are you not hungry? And he's like, Bob, you're eating in your closet. 
And, he, and I'm like, yes. And he's like, do you understand that you've gotten to a point in your life where having all of your meals with your dirty laundry is, the, is like, that was the logical conclusion to this. But you got to understand, this guy, and he ate my cereal and the whole box. And it really started sounding totally ridiculous. And, um, and he's like, listen, I'm not, I'm, I know, I know, I know him. And I know that he puts it away like nobody you've ever seen. But is this God's best for your life? Eating in secret, in the secret place, you know. Um, and man, that's when I realized, like, what have I become, you know. Uh, and, and so I, just, I realized what this ingratitude and my greed was doing. And I did what was totally unnatural for me. Um, I said, I am going to be incredibly generous to this guy and incredibly grateful that I actually have money to buy groceries. I brought all my stuff out. And the guy's like, you've been keeping all of that. Not one word ever will be spoken of this, mister. Anyway, so I bring all the stuff out. And then I go grocery shopping a few days later. And I say, hey, I'm going grocery shopping. You need anything? Uh, what can I get for you? And then he, he, and he gives me like two or three things. And I was like, you know, I'm going to do it. I was hurting him on the inside, but I was blessing him on the outside. Praise the Lord. I'll do it. And so I did it. And you know what happened? Once he saw my generosity towards him, he became generous towards me. And most importantly, never ate my cinnamon toast crunch again. Um, <clears throat> but I'm telling you, once um, I realized that like this whole thing, that once I was thankful and I was grateful for what I had and I could just express some generosity towards him, totally changed the game. Totally changed the game in, in our relationship. And you say, well, Bob, that's a funny story. And that, you know, I'm sure I could handle a serial situation if it came up now. Um, but what do I do if, <clears throat> if I mean, it's, I mean, because I'm, what I'm going through right now is really serious. And I don't know if that's really going to help me. Um, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is preaching in the city of Philippi. And this girl comes up to him. And she, this girl is demon-possessed, according to the passage, and she actually um, gives, is like, she's like a fortune teller. She starts telling people all these things, and um, there's people that are actually using her and making money off of um, what she's able to do because of this demon activity that's going on in her. Well, Paul sees her and has compassion on her and actually casts out the demon. And the girl is in, then in her right frame of mind. But the people that was, were making money off of her get very, very upset because they're like, well, now you've ruined our business. So they trump up some charges and they get Paul and his associate who's traveling with him. His name is Silas. They get both of them thrown into prison. They're beaten, thrown in prison. And now all for doing a good thing, for helping this girl. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> and you would think like, now what do you do? And by the way, they were in there and they were going to be executed. And here's what happens. I put this in your notes. Listen to what it says. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to, him, to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing that the prison doors were open... Supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, was about to kill himself. But Paul said with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. I want you to think about that. Their ability to give thanks in a difficult situation allowed them to see God move in a way that they never thought possible. You see, we might say, I'm in such a difficult spot. It's like I'm in a prison. But you know what happened when they started singing and praising God in the prison? The doors were opened. And by the way, the reason that this Philippian jailer was going to kill himself, he drew a sword, he's going to kill himself, was because of a Roman law. There was a Roman law that said that if you were a guard or a, 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 a prison guard 
or you were a soldier that was in charge of a prisoner and he escaped, you got his sentence if he escaped. So uh, that was Caesar's way of motivating the soldiers to make sure that they uh, kept good tabs on the people that they were in charge of. But he was going to kill himself because he says, I am the dead man. And when they re- Paul realized, they say, hey, we're all in here. He realizes that Paul staying in there is what saved his life. And that's when he says, listen, what must I do to be saved? Paul shares the gospel with him. And this man has changed forever. His family has changed forever. All because no matter what circumstance, they were willing to give thanks. To be grateful, to be thankful in this situation. The reason why this is important is that no matter where you are in your marriage, God is using your marriage, your marriage relationship to actually... The the person you're married to is the primary person that God is using to transform you and make you more like Jesus. (coughs) Because you say, man, but things are tough. Yeah, I know things are tough in the moment. But you're going to look back and you're going to say, man, I don't know where I would have been had that difficult time not come. And I'm telling you, I've learned that in my own life, that there have been difficult seasons in my life that I never want to repeat. But I also realized that if I... Uh, was, was able to just pull the string out from, from that season and I could just erase that, listen, the tapestry of my life would fall apart because there was something that God was doing in that season that was growing me and making me the man that I am. And the same thing is true with you and the same thing is true in your marriage that God is using everything in our relationships to make us more like Him. Um, and I, you see this, uh, especially if you have kids, God is doing that in your life. On Friday afternoon, uh, Friday's my day off, and I, I had the incredible, rare privilege of taking a nap. Um, and so I was on, uh, I fell asleep on, on my bed, taking a nap, and uh, my wife was uh, in bed too, and uh, she was feeding my daughter Olivia, who's seven weeks old. And um, Mia, who's five, and Xander, who's two and a half, they were in the house playing, and things got really quiet. Now, those of you that are parents know that there's two things you don't want to see happen. You don't want things to get real loud where things start to break. And you don't want things to get real quiet. Because you know that evil is amok when it gets real quiet. <coughs> so, <clears throat> I, we, I wake up and it's total silence. And I look at Carrie and I'm like, something wrong is happening. So we get up, <clears throat> we walk out of our bedroom, and there's water all over the floor. And um, there's water. We walk to the living room. There's water. There's an air. We have an area rug because uh, we have wood floors. And so there's water all over the area rug, water all over the entertainment center, water all over the couch. Uh, I mean, it looked like it rained inside the house. Water all the way down the hallway, water on the walls, water, um, a puddle of water in between me and Xander's room. I walk into Xander's room, water everywhere. His bed is soaking wet. He has this little R2-D2, like, comfortable chair. R2-D2 soaking wet. His toys are wet. Mia's room is wet. And so we call the kids over. And we say, guys, I say, how did, um, how did this water get everywhere? I don't know. You little sinners. And, uh, <clears throat> and then I just, <clears throat> then it just came to me. <clears throat> and I said, Mia... You know that bottle of water that I gave you? Because you said you were thirsty and you wanted refreshing water. Not just water. Puppy, I want refreshing water. So I gave her a bottle of water and then there's like this little cap that you can put on it. So even if they turn it over, it doesn't spill. And I said, you know that cap, that, that, that bottle of refreshing water that I gave you? Yes, Poppy. I said, Mia, did you figure out that if you actually don't drink the water, but if you turn it and squeeze the bottle, it becomes like a squirt gun? Um, Did you figure that out? Yes. Okay. And then I had another epiphany, and that is there's a lot. It was an 11-ounce bottle of water. It was a small bottle of water. And I said, um, there's a lot more than 11 ounces of water on the floor. And I said, Mia, you went to the fridge, and you filled up the bottle of water once it was empty. Now I want you to tell me how many times you and your brother filled up the bottle of water. Once. Okay, it was once the first time. How many times did you actually fill up the bottle of water um, while 
Bobby was asleep and mommy was feeding Olivia. The truth. Nine or ten. <clears throat> and so now Carrie says, listen, I'm going to talk to Mia. And I say, that's fine. I'll talk to Xander about this. Carrie talks to me about this and, and, and it's fine. So I say to Xander, I say, Xander, never do this again. And he says to me, he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, never again. <laughs> and I say, listen, kid, never play with water inside the house. Do you understand me? No play with water. And I say, this isn't funny, Xander. Do you understand me? And he says, do you understand me? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I say, kid, you're supposed to say yes or no to that question. And he says, yes or no. And, I, you know, I don't even know what to do at that moment. I just walked away. I told Carrie, I said, I have reached the limit of my parenting. This is it. It's as far as I go. Once he starts mimicking me, I don't even know what to do. <coughs> so, anyway, <laughs> I told... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I told Carrie this. Well, Carrie and I can't stop laughing. And so now we're trying to reprimand the kids in some way, but we can't because we can't stop laughing. Because we, we have this thing that we say, like, you know, you know that, that like, you know, someday you'll look back, back on this and laugh. Well, if we say we're going to look back on it and laugh, let's like experience it and laugh. And uh, so that's kind of one of the things we, we, we live by. And so we just kind of laughed and we said, listen, don't ever do that again. By the way, you can't ever have water again. Um, so that's it, you know. So if my kids look dehydrated, it's because they cannot have water anymore. And uh, so then last night um, we ordered a... Uh, Last night, Carrie and I went out in the afternoon on a date, and then uh, we came home. We said, hey, let's just order a pizza. So we ordered a pizza, and they, that they delivered. And um, so um, Xander has his juice, uh, which is locked tight in a hard, you know, <coughs> it's like a Fort Knox of juice cups. Um, and so I have this uh, caffeine-free Coke that I'm drinking uh, in, in a red cup with a straw. And, uh, and he says, uh, Bobby. Xander Coke. Coke for me. You know, I mean, I don't know. He talks in the broken English. I don't even know how he's like, I'm training him in this. Um, but so anyway, so I say, you know what, Xander, that's fine. You take a bite of pizza and I'll give you a little sip of, of this Coke. So he takes a bite of pizza. He takes a sip of I, I hold it, give him a sip of Coke. And he says, no, me, me, me do, me do. I'm like, kid, there's no chance of that. Well, the thing about kids is that they are so persistent. They just have this ability to wear you down. And um, at, at, by the end of it, I was ready to get a two-liter bottle, stick a straw on it, and say, kid, do what you need to. But anyway, so I finally, I say, listen, I will let you hold it, but you have to take a bite of pizza, and then you take a sip of Coke. Well, Xander, see, the thing is, he knows, like, he, he is, the kid is so funny. Uh, I don't know where he gets a sense of humor from, but he is so funny. And then once you're kind of laughing at his stuff, he just keeps taking it over the top. So he takes a sip and he's like, mm. so he does. He's just so animated. And then he takes a he goes, pizza. Mm. He slams it on the plate and then he takes a sip of Coke and he's really like going over the top. And I'm like, Xander, please, like throttle it back, you know. And so then in one of the times that he threw the pizza down and grabbed the pizza and the Coke, he spills the Coke, spills it all over himself, spills it all over the table, spills it. It's like it's like Niagara Falls spilling onto the floor and onto the chair. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at this. And so every we get up, I'm grabbing paper towels and napkins and this whole time. Now, the, the Xander looks at it and he goes, Bobby, all wet. Mike, thank you for that. And by the way, the whole time he has picked up the, the, the red cup and he's like this. The last little morsel of Coke that's in there, he's drinking while he's watching me. And I'm like, kid, grab a napkin. <coughs> Do something. And Mia's helping. Everybody's helping. And he's like this. All wet. And, uh, and uh, you know, the whole thing, we finally clean it up. And uh, the kids go to bed and, and all that. And I say to Carrie, and I'm like, listen, why is God using liquids in my life? 
And I'm like, I feel like the Egyptians, like, God, I will let your people go. No more plagues. Uh, and I don't get it. Uh, you know, but that's that's what happens. God is using everything. All these crazy things that happen in your life and in mine. God is molding us and shaping us. I have no idea how these liquids are making me more like Jesus. Um, no idea, but I'm, I'm sure it is. But I have no idea how. Well, let me give you the last one real quick because I'm out of time. Uh, the, verse 21, uh, he says this, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. So what happens when your, your marriage is full of God's power and spirit-filled. And the last one is this, is that your will will be submissive and overwhelmed. <clears throat> now, what do I mean by that? Submissive and overwhelmed. Most marriage talks begin at verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And, you know, the guys, you know, like the machismo, yeah, I like that, I want to be in charge, you know, whatever. But that's not where the discussion begins. Discussion begins back in verse 18. But then in verse 21, he says this, that when you're, you're filled with God's Spirit, there's going to be a song in your heart that you're going to be thankful, giving thanks in all things, and you will be submissive to submitting to one another in the fear of God. Not just wives submitting, it's husbands and wives both submitting in the fear of God. So let's deal with the submission part first. Uh, then we'll deal with the fear of God part, which is totally misunderstood. Submission is the Greek word hupotasso which is a military term that means to line up under another person. So there's a command structure. One person lines up under another. And uh, so there, there's, a, there's an order to how things work. And it means that we aren't, when one person is submitting to another, it means that they aren't demanding their own way. Instead, they are relinquishing rights for the sake of the other person. And that's the only way that marriage works. <coughs> Not just wives submitting to husbands, but husbands submitting as well, submitting to one another, submitting our will, submitting our desires, submitting our wants for the sake of the other person. The most important marriage verse I know is found in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The reason is because people don't actually have marriage problems, they have discipleship problems. The reason we have marriage problems many times is because both people aren't following Jesus and taking up their cross, which is all about self-sacrifice. And why do we do it? Why do we submit to one another? Because our spouse has earned it? Because it's, you know, it feels good? No. It's because we do it out of fear of God. Now, let me explain that. Um, don't think of fear in the sense of terror, you know, like uh, we think of fear like, oh, did you see the newest Saw movie and the guy got his head sawed off, you know, like, ah, you know, that kind of fear, like terror. That's not what the Bible is talking about. If that's what the Bible is talking about, the fear of God means terror, then the Bible associates the weirdest emotions with this idea of terror, if that's what it means. Let me give you an idea. In, um, I put it in your notes in Proverbs 28. How blessed is the man who always fears. And the idea is who always fears the Lord. <clears throat> that is, and, and the word blessed means, oh, how happy is. So it's like, oh, how happy is the guy who's terrified. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Another passage in Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, but there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. So it's like my God's desire is forgive you to forgive you so that you will be totally scared and freaked out. Like, that doesn't make sense. So what does the fear of God actually mean? The fear of the Lord in Hebrew has, over, has tones, overtones of awe and respect. But fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed. To be overwhelmed with wonder before the grace of God. That's why uh, the more that we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more that we experience the trembling awe of how great God is because of all that He's done for us. With this understanding, these verses make a lot more sense. Blessed is the man who always is in awe and wonder and overwhelmed by you. You see, in, um, in the Psalm 130 passage, there is forgiveness in you that we may be in awe and in wonder and overwhelmed by you. So in marriage... We put the needs of our spouse above our own out of our 
awe and wonder and overwhelming, uh, being overwhelmed by the grace of God. Because Jesus modeled it for us. He submitted himself to his Father for our sake. He did what a loving husband does. He, as we'll read later in Ephesians, says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He loved us and was willing to be crucified and said, Listen, I will give up, I will die to my dreams, my ideas, and even give my own life for the sake of, of my bride. You see, many times we think, well, if, if I submit, I'll become a doormat to this other person. You know what if he, uh, Philippians chapter 2 says? It says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then here's what God did. He lifted him up and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That there's this idea that when I submit myself, no, I don't become a doormat. Instead, when I submit myself, God has a way of lifting me up. And this is just the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God. Many times we think, well, I don't want to be a doormat, so I'm going to go after power and authority so that nobody can ever try to take advantage of me. But yet here's how it works. That, that doesn't work. Here's how it works in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you humble yourself and submit yourself to God. And you submit to one another in the fear, on awesome reverence, as you're overwhelmed by God's grace and how He saved you and loves you. And that, when you do, God has this way of lifting you up. <clears throat> because, my friends, greatness is not found in serving others. It's found, or it's not found in others serving us. It's found in service to others. Because when we lovingly serve one another, we will find joy and fulfillment. And this is the reason why so many people are so unhappy. is because they're looking to their spouse saying, I married you, you were supposed to make me happy. But that's what we thought. But the truth is, they can't. Because they're not built to. Because their resources are limited to make you happy. That's why it's when the two of us look to God and say, you're the only one that can meet all of my needs according to your riches and glory. Then here's what happens. We look to Him, we draw close to Him, and as we draw close to Him, we draw closer together, and the result is the joy that we were seeking all along. A marriage that is full of God's Spirit, full of God's power, full of God's will being done God's way. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, thank You. Thank You that You told us that in Your presence is fullness of joy that it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. And so, Lord, we thank you that even in marriage we can have joy, we can find and experience happiness, but simply looking to you to provide it. God, do that work in every couple that's here, in every single help them to understand that the day that it comes when they are married, that the same way that you provide for them now, and they find their joy in you now is the same way that they will find joy in you when they're married. God, thank you. May each marriage here, every relationship here be filled with your spirit. May every person here be filled with your spirit to overflowing that the world who doesn't know you might see what a relationship committed to you looks like and that it's a picture of your love for us. In Jesus' name.